So we are going through the book of 1 Timothy. We're gonna hit 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, great, they're called the pastoral epistles. I love them. I hope you are enjoying them as well. We're jumping into chapter three. Chapter three, it's about leaders. Do leaders matter? <laughs> uh, leaders matter. So if you are here for chapter one, Paul actually mentions two leaders, Alexander and Hymenaeus, that were bad and says that they had shipwrecked people's faith because of bad leadership. He'll, in the second epistle, talk about Jannes and Jambres, two of these leaders that were with Pharaoh that did the same thing. You have a story in the Old Testament <clears throat> where 10 10 leaders, because of lack of faith, discourage 2 million people and lead them on a 40-year death march when they could have just crossed over a river and come into their promised land. Do leaders matter? Oh, man, they really, really matter. It's life or death, really. Leaders are that important. But, but I'm sincere in what I want to do, okay? If you wanna dig a ditch for me, sincerity is all you need. But if you wanna operate on cancer, I want something more than sincerity. If you wanna fly a jumbo jet, a 747, I want more than sincerity. I'm sure my seven-year-old Myron would sincerely, sincerely love to fly a 747, but would you get on board? No, because you realize you need something more than just sincerity, than just desire. And so there's qualifications, okay? And that's just on the outside world. Spiritually, who are you gonna entrust your soul to? What kind of a person, what kind of a group, what kind of a church would you entrust your very eternal soul to? What kind of a person would you trust your wife to? Or your kids to? Does it matter? Would you trust it to somebody who has a I heart Jeffrey Dahmer tattoo on their shoulder? Yeah, no problem. Dude, you're sincere. You seem like a decent chap. No, you're gonna want qualifications. So that is this chapter. The qualifications for leaders in the church. And I want you to note, as we go through this, not once does it say you require a seminary degree. We have reversed things today. We've reversed it from God's original mandate. We now call the qualified. We look at resumes. Oh, you got your MDiv from whatever. All right, then I'll give you a call. So we look at qualifications above calling. But if you read the Bible, it's real clear. God qualifies the called. I'm not against seminary. I went personally. But I know this, not in this list. Because God will if you have a calling on your life, he will give you the qualifications required to be what he's called you to be. That's what God can do, right? And sometimes it's in very strange ways, right? Just ask Joshua. He takes over from Moses. Would there be a bigger leadership void in the Bible than you taking over from Moses? The guy that frees them from Pharaoh, the most powerful empire on earth at the time, crosses the Red Sea, feeds them manna in the wilderness for 40 years. I mean, talk about a leadership vacuum. Joshua's up to bat. 
goes out, they have a massive battle against this fortress called Jericho. And he's wondering, how do we take out this fortress? I don't have an army. I have a bunch of ex-slaves. That's what I have. How are we gonna do this? So he goes apart all night to pray. And this man meets him. Very interesting man. He knows he's unique. He's like, uh, what side are you on? And this individual doesn't even answer Joshua. He just says, no, I'm not answering that question. And then he gives Joshua the plan to take Jericho. So Joshua, his first leadership thing, all these guys are waiting. You're taking over for Moses, what are you gonna do? How are we gonna take Jericho? He comes back with the plan. I got a plan from God. Great, what is it? Calvary, foot soldiers, battering ram, burn them out, what is it? Uh, no, we're, we're gonna walk around the city once. And then what? We can't talk the whole time. And then what? We're gonna go home. Okay, and the next day, we'll walk around the city again. Not talking again. And then what? We'll go home. What? Okay, well, we'll do the third day. We're gonna walk around the city without talking. What? And we do that the fourth day and the fifth day, and the sixth day, and the seventh day, we're gonna walk around it seven times, and then we're gonna all gonna shout. That's your plan? You're fired, right? But God qualifies the call. He will show, he's my dude, she's my gal. Why? By the way that I use them, because when they shouted on that seventh day, what happened to the walls of Jericho? They fell down. He's my called dude. Doesn't have a degree, he's my called dude. How about Jehoshaphat? He's the guy that surrounded by a massive army. He says, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. God gives him a plan. Also just a bizarre plan. It was not send out the cavalry or the air force or the SEAL team. His was send out the praise team. I'm sure the worship team was like, I did not sign up for this. Get him out there, tuba, top hat, baton, get him out there. They're gonna take out this army. And that's exactly what happens because God qualifies the call. Always, always remember that. Not about your qualifications. It's not about your list of whatever you've got. Not that that's a bad thing, but that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for people that he has called to do his will and that will obey him no matter what, even when it seems ridiculous. Really, God? The praise team? Okay, okay. Please note that. So here's the leaders. It's elders. The Greek word is episkopos. Sometimes it's translated bishop, depending on your translation. Um, it can mean elder. Um, it just overseer is the way my translation puts it, but it's really elder. Um, bishop, to me, it's either a guy with a top hat or it's something in chess. So I like overseer better. So you got elder, overseer, deacons, and then it ends with Jesus. It's just this brilliant outline of leadership. So let's jump in. First, the elder. And, and Paul does this. He says, I'm gonna deal with the elder himself, what he is like. I'm gonna deal with how he treats his friends, how he treats his family, his faith, and how he's viewed in community. That all of those parts matter when it comes to qualifying a person that's going to lead my church, right? So verse one, 1 Timothy. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's that word episkopos. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, 
the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard. Just a note, it said he. Every Greek pronoun in here, every Greek verb is male. Elders are to be men. This is a great debate inside the church today. And the debate is a spillover from our culture because our culture is saying right now that there is no difference between men and women. That the differences in gender are social constructs. Have you heard that word? Social constructs mean that the way or the reason why boys and girls might appear to be different is because we treat them as a society differently. So when a boy does something masculine, we say, good job, son. And when a girl does something cute or beautiful, we say, good job, girl. So we're reinforcing our social constructs onto our kids, but really there is no difference between them. They are exactly the same. And we're supposed to treat them that way. It's called egalitarianism. I think it's stupid. Right? That there are things that men are super good at and that there are things that women are super good at and that is really good and that's the way that God has designed it. And all this gender bender insanity is ridiculous. And this thing, when it says it's a man to do this, it is not about ability. Please know that. If you are paying attention right now to our culture, men are being left behind by women. Do you know that? 70% of high school valedictorians, women. Majority of college degrees, women. Majority now of PhDs, women. You know why? Because there's something in a man that if a woman says, I'm gonna do it, the man says this, go ahead then. And I'm gonna play video games, watch porn, and smoke pot. If you don't believe me that that's happening, let me recommend a book for you. It's called Man Interrupted by Philip Zimbardo, written about six years ago. And he is a psychologist at the University of Stanford. He's not a Christian. The book is not a Christian book. He's just saying, man is being interrupted right now and it's destroying men. And it's video games, it's pornography, and it's drug abuse and they're taking out men, and they're lagging behind. And if we don't, as a society, do something about this, this is five years ago now, if we don't do something about this, look out. That's why. God knew this. And there are churches that go egalitarian, and there are people that begin to watch what happens. And what happens is this, men don't go to church anymore. We got Genesis. <laughs> I like Genesis. <laughs> You have egalitarian churches, and what happens is this, men stay home and watch football, and their wives take their kids to church. That's what happens. Men just check out. It's not about ability. My wife is way more able than me. In so many ways, I'm just, I am absolutely amazed at how hard she works, what a brilliant woman she is. Brilliant. Like, just off the cuff. So, um, I came in a little bit late, and my wife was walking into the kids' wing right here, and Justin came out and saw my wife and he said, hey, um, where, where's Matt? I haven't seen him. 
And my wife just looked at Justin and said, what? Don't you know you're, you're up tonight? And he was just like, what? <laughs> I mean, just off the cuff. She's brilliant. This is not about ability. This is about God's order saying, I know men. I know men. And I'm gonna make men. They're gonna be elders. That's the way this thing is going to work, right? Now, we gotta be careful because there can be this thing then when it's men that, that a man has to be a certain kind of way, right? That he needs to like uh, love brave heart, except for the skirt, but love brave heart, right? Maybe not paint himself blue, but love brave heart. Yell, scream, go camping, kill animals. You gotta hunt, right? Hunting today is ridiculous, let's be honest. You go out in your RV, you got you know, your propane burner, you shoot a deer from 400 yards, you pick it up on your quad, bring it back, and then you take it to somebody to cut it up. Really? That's hunting? I was in Africa where the Maasai, in order to become a man, you, by yourself, go kill a lion with your bare hands. That's hunting, right? You wanna talk about hunting? Yeah, be a Maasai. Give me a break, right? So we, we stereotype men. The Bible does not do that. Read about David, right? Musician who loved to dance. Danced so hard one time, yeah, he was left in his tidy whities and that's it, right? That's, that's a, there's a holistic kind of man that the Bible is after, okay? And that's the kind of person that God says, they're to be elders. So I'll give you a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, in the secular world, Men and women can and must be treated as unisex, interchangeable, neuters, citizens, and workers. However, that is a fiction that we are allowed to shed when we, when we return to the world of reality, God's world. There, we may resume our real identities as men and women. I love that quote. In church, we need to be what we're really supposed to be, our true identities as men and women. So it's men. And number one, they gotta have, it says here, aspires or they have to desire this office. It's the Greek word epithumeo. If you've been here, you've heard me say that. It's literally an overdrive. You have to have this overdrive to be an elder. You know why? because you will make decisions that people do not like. And in this day and age, people will let you know that they do not like your decisions. We've got email and text messaging and Facebook and Instagram and cancel culture. And so you better be knowing I desires this and I'm called to this or else you'll give up. You got desire. Number two, it says, they need to be above reproach. The King James puts it as blameless. Anyone in here blameless? Right? It's like in an interview where you go for a job interview and they ask you, hey, what's your one weakness? And you gotta say something like, well, you know, I just, I care too much. That's my one weakness. I just give myself to the job too much, you know, it's what I do, yeah. It's like that. It's the only way you stay blameless is just, you start just, when really your one weakness is you procrastinate all the time on the internets. That's your one weakness. But you're not gonna say that, right? Here's what this means. This above reproach is real simple. It means you've dealt with your junk. You don't have a skeleton in the closet. You're not hiding something back there. 
You've de- it's not that you're perfect or sinless, it's you've dealt with your issues and your junk, you've let people know about it, you've confessed it, you've repented of it. That's what it is, right? You don't have this kind of hanging thing just waiting, oh, I hope they don't, hope they don't find out about that. You don't have that. And a lot of people do. There was this classic guy, he was known as a, a prankster, his name is Sir Arthur Doyle, he's a famous person. And he had these 25 friends that he sent out this telegraph, right? The telegraph was ancient texting. So he sent out this telegraph to 25 of his friends and he just wrote this. All has been discovered, flee at once. Within 24 hours, all 25 of his friends had fled because we all have a skeleton in our closet. The elder says, I'm not gonna have that. If I get that thing, I'm gonna be like, what are you talking about? I've dealt with my junk. I've been honest and humble, I've repented. I am above reproach now. Then, the husband of one wife. Simple. You're not looking at the ladies. That's what that means. You're a one woman man, that's it. So I did this thing called the School of Ministry. And Pastor John Corson would say this, don't touch the gold Don't touch the glory and don't touch the girls. I think that's wise advice for anyone that wants to be in a ministry. Don't touch the gold. Don't get involved in money. That thing will run you over. The glory remains God alone. Don't act like you're something great, right? Look at Joshua. Look at Jehoshaphat. Look at Balaam the prophet, right? Donkey was what ended up correcting Balaam. Don't get full of yourself. And do not touch the girls. Like we are right now in our country seeing two very big name guys being taken down by this, right? Carl Lentz of Hillsong and pray for these guys and Ravi Zacharias, right? He's being drugged through the mud. I don't know what's true or not, but it's a bummer. As a leader, you get to say, I'm not doing that. I struggle with that. Read Job 31.1. This is what Job said. And Job was, God said this about Job. There is no one on earth more righteous than Job. This is what Job said. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look at a maid. That's a good one to write on your computer. That's a good one to write on your screen of your uh, dashboard. I'm not looking at girls. I'm a one woman man because that is treachery. That will take you out. One woman man. Sober Minded. It means this. You're not bouncing back and forth from all kinds of stuff. So you can read Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. He says this. I beat my body into subjection. I'm not zigzagging on my course. I'm keeping my eye straight ahead of what I know I'm going to do. That's what it's saying right here. There are some people that they just bounce around. They wanna do this, I wanna go over here and do this. And then it's a get rich scheme over here and they're always changing. Others say, no, I know where I'm going. I'm sticking to this. Uh, many, many years ago, 2004, worked as an engineer. The owner of the company had this big boat down in San Diego. So we went down there and we're on this boat. And he goes, Matt, do you wanna drive this boat? So it's this massive boat. I'm in this harbor right there in San Diego. I'm like, well, why not? It's got like 7,000 horsepower. Like, yeah. So I get up there and you're driving this boat. It has this computer and you look up and there's boats everywhere. And I started being like, 
whoa, what do I do? He gave me some advice, I've never forgot it. He said, maintain present speed and heading. That's all you do. Because it lets every other boat know what you're doing. If you're all over the place, that's how you get an accident. Just maintain present speed and heading and you'll go right through them. Sure enough, that's what we did. That's been pretty much my philosophy in life. I'm gonna maintain my present speed and heading until I hear from God and then I'll change. But until I do, this is what I'm gonna be doing. That's this idea, sober-minded, self-controlled. You know what that means? You're in control of yourself. <laughs> it means the first thing that you break on your new car is not the horn. That's what that means. You're in control of yourself. Things don't get under your skin and you don't blow up all the time. You're in control of yourself. Respectable. Respectable. How do you know if a man is respectable? I think there is only one way. You ask his wife. Is your husband respectable? That's the one person that to me can give the real answer because she knows, she knows. Hospitable. You have to like people. Your business and elders business is people. So you better like people, be hospitable. You need to be able to teach. You should be in God's word, soaking in it, so that you can explain the big doctrines of scripture. You can teach those things to people. You can lead someone to salvation. You can disciple somebody that's growing in their salvation. Teach. Not a drunkard. Seems pretty self-explanatory to me. If you call and want an elder, you wouldn't want him showing up six sheets to the wind. Sheesh, where's my Bible? Ah, let me see here. Um, uh, <laughs> can you call someone else? That would be a bummer. So this is the man, all these qualifications. Here's how he's supposed to treat his friends. Not violent. Do you know guys that always seem to take everything the wrong way? Like they're just waiting to be offended, waiting for like a reason to get agitated or stirred up. It's not an elder. Not quarreling. You know, people that say this like, well, I'm just being the devil's advocate. You know what I always ask them? Do you know what team you're on right now? Are you sure you wanna be the devil's advocate? I don't think he needs an advocate, right? Do you know people like this? If you don't, maybe it's you. Repent, please. Unnecessary, right? Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Hmm. What's wrong with loving money? Yeah, it kills your happiness. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I was listening to this professor at Oxford and he was talking about COVID-19 and there was a technical paper written on COVID-19 and um, if it came from a wet market, the, the paper said this, what happens is in China, they like to eat these very exotic animals and they're really expensive. You make a lot of money on selling these exotic animals. A lot of them are illegal to get, right? Whatever, a rhinoceros horn or they're, they're just some strange things that they eat. So um, if it was in this wet market, when you have an exotic animal and you capture it, 
What they've noticed is this. They literally begin to be stressed and they, they excrete, that's the word that was used. I don't know how they do it. They excrete these ancient viruses. And they're pretty much sure that's what happened. That this probably illegal animal, very exotic, was brought into this wet market and started excreting these viruses that then got into people and moved out. All of it was driven by one thing, greed. I wanna make money on this. That's why. So in the city of God, people walk on streets of gold and love the people. In the city of man, people walk on people and love gold. Where do you live? Where's your heart? When you have spare time, what are you thinking about? How to make more money? How to love more people? What city do you live in? Because the city of man tears itself down. That's this entire book. The city of man tears itself down every time. Babylon, even Jerusalem, God's city, ends up so corrupt, God has to destroy it. Because Manasseh starts to offer his children as a sacrifice to the god Moloch. The city of man tears itself up. The city of God is brilliant and beautiful and incredible. Where do I live? Am I a lover of money? Because it'll ruin you. I had this story, and it's always stuck in my mind. Maybe you know Chuck Sherrard. He is my hero. That man is my hero. He did not tell me this story. I heard it. So he fixes RVs. He's not making a ton of money. You don't, make a, you don't go into the fixing RV money to become Jeff Bezos, right? So he fixes RVs. So he had this RV out in Cave Junction that he went and he fixed it. And then he was driving home and he remembered this family that lived out there and he wanted to visit them and see how they're doing. So he pulls into this family's yard and he notices all their stuff is out of the house and they're being evicted. And he's like, oh man, that's terrible. Well, he just made a hundred bucks at this RV job. So he's like, well, here, let me give you a hundred bucks. Gives him all the money he has, which is a hundred bucks. And I'm like, oh, thanks Chuck, man, that's awesome. He goes, can I pray for you? And they're like, well, sure. So he prays for them. Well, someone's, you know, the, the story gets passed down and, um, Chuck said this, he said, I gave them the $100 so that I could have the privilege to pray for them. That struck me, here's why. Because people will tell me their problems and I'll pray for them so I don't have to deal with their problems, right? Well, I don't wanna give you any money, I don't wanna deal with this, let me pray for you. It's a way of me almost saying, well, not my problem, I'm just gonna offload. And I was, I've been convicted by that statement now for about 12 years. I wanna be like Chuck. I wanna love people and walk on gold because gold can get into my heart so quick. It cannot be lovers of money because it will ruin you. And then family, verse five, four, he must manage his own household well, with all diligence, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? That's a tough one. Family. Here's what I know. You can fool me, not hard. I used to think I could read people. I can't read people. I don't know. I just trust people. It's the way that I wanna be. I'm gonna trust people as much as I can. I can't, you can fool me. You can go on a mission trip with me and for two weeks you can look like Mother Teresa, I guarantee it. 
But I know this, you can't fool your family because you're with them 24, seven, 365. You will not fool your family. They will know exactly what you are. That's why Paul puts here, you can't trick them. People ask me, Matt, do you have hobbies? You know what my hobby is right now? My home, my kids. That's, that's you know, what, what I wanna help. And those are the, the, the places I wanna pour my energy in right now. Now, when my kids are grown and they're gone, maybe I'll play golf then. But right now, it's my kids. Because I've seen pastors and people sacrifice their family on the altar of ministry. I got a ministry, I got this, I got, you know. And then kids grow up to hate the church because it robbed them of their father. And I always think, I don't want that to happen. I don't want that to happen. So many years ago, um, I, I was watching TBN with my wife. It was like 10 years ago. I don't know why I watch TBN, because usually it makes me mad. There's something I'm like, that is not right. But um, it was Benny Hinn, and he was in the middle of his divorce, if you remember this. And they were asking him about his divorce. And this is what he said. He said, as he was getting divorced from Susanna Hinn, his wife, he said, um, I'm not going to let anything interfere with the ministry. And remember, I jumped up and I was like, she is your ministry. That doesn't matter. She's your ministry. How stupid is that? Praise the Lord, if you know that story. And I'm not a Benny Hinn defender or a Benny Hinn critic. He repented after the divorce and they've got back together and they've been remarried. Praise the Lord. And he has admitted, yeah, I made some big mistakes in that. How are you treating your family? Do your kids want your faith? That's to me the measure. Are they, I love my dad's faith. I love my mom's faith. That's what I want. We can get this excuse thing, right? I'm so important, right? I'm so important, I'm so big, whatever. No, you're not. You put your pants on like everyone else. Take care of your wife. No one's more important than that. That's Genesis chapter one. Genesis one, nothing more important. Right, family, faith. Verse six, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Time is the greatest tester of all. Do you know that? People can talk a good talk, come back in five years, come back in two years, show me what it means. My favorite example of this is Linus Pauling. He's the only guy that's won two Nobel Prizes that were not divided, were like shared with somebody else. He's the only guy that's ever done it. And he is a guy, perhaps you know him, who took tons of vitamin C. So he's well known for the vitamin C thing. And he, at the end of his life, was taking 18,000 milligrams of vitamin C. Just unbelievable. And so he had all these critics, like, you're insane, why you, should, you shouldn't do that. And then he, was, he has this interview when he was like 92 years old, and they were asking him about vitamin C. And they said, where are all your critics now? And he said, they're all dead. I was like, that's brilliant. I mean, <laughs> okay, all right, I'm doing what you did then, man. <laughs> Time will tell. Time will tell. I grew up in this church called Gospel Outreach that was in the 70s and you know, people were coming out of drugs and uh, 
bad lifestyles and they would just come into this church and it was really like an outreach church. And as kids, we'd watch this and we had a saying as kids, from alcoholic to elder in six months or less guaranteed. Because you just see these guys like trail the street and they'd be all gung-ho and they'd be elders and then they'd be like teaching and I'd be like, that, that's not what that story says because I like knew the Bible better than they did. Be careful of that. Be careful. Better to be one year late than one year early because the devil loves rookies. He loves rookies. And I think too many people have been pushed into ministry a year early and been picked off when if they would have just waited and said, God, I will let you open the door for me, they would have had great success, right? So his faith to outsiders. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. What's the biggest attack against the church today? Is it atheism? Hypocrites. Number one reason why people leave the church is because of another Christian and their witness, hypocrisy. It's because our Sunday talk and our Monday walk are enemies with each other. And soon it comes back to haunt us. And people, listen, they're watching you. They're watching you. I know they're watching me. So a while back I bought, like I wanted to make root beer floats and I like Henry Weinhardt's. But Henry Weinhardt's, when you buy a Henry Weinhardt six pack, from a distance, it looks like a six pack, right? So, and I, I don't drink, I've said that, you know. I have a family history of alcoholism that's on both sides of, my, sides of my family. My older brother is dead from alcoholism. My little brother is a drug addict on the streets of Grant's Pass right now because of addiction. So I know in my DNA, probably best not, that's fire, right? So I have talked about that. And you've been here, you know that. So I'm buying this six pack and it's the only thing I'm buying and, and I'm ready to check out. And I can see this lady one aisle over and I recognize her from church. And she kind of looks back and then she does a double take. And I'm like, oh, great. So, <laughs> so, so I was like, um, the lady's like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, great, I'm making root beer floats tonight with Henry Weinhardt's root beer. And he's like, are you okay? I will be great when I have a root beer float with my kids. Because <laughs> hypocrisy kills. We gotta be careful. We gotta be really, really careful that what we say on Sunday matches how we walk on Monday. And that's this reputation to those that are without, right? So that's the elder. Deacon, I may have to speed up. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. 
A lot of overlap, big difference. Deacons minister with their hands and elders with their words. Deacons use like physical service. And you can read this in Acts chapter six, Acts chapter seven. Um, it's not exclusive. Stephen is a, you know, he's a hands-on guy, but he also preaches the gospel. But there are people that desire to be used by God and for them to be up here on front teaching would be the worst thing they could imagine. They'd rather be like fear factor, put in a coffin with tarantulas and like rattlesnakes than come up here. But they still wanna be used. And so this is the practical kind of hands-on stuff. And it says they need to be dignified. It, it, the Greek just means even keeled. It means this, you're not worried about who you're gonna get today. Like, am I gonna get the nice guy or the bad guy? He's gonna be grumpy or, you know, it's, they're even keeled. They're always the same. They're not double-tongued. They keep their word. If they say they're going to be there, they will be there unless they're dead or in jail for preaching the gospel, of course. <laughs> right? I said I was gonna serve and I will be there. Right? Not drunks, not greedy, not young in the faith, just like elders. But verse 11, and I'll point this out quickly, it says their wives likewise must. If you have a different translation, there are three ways the Greek there is translated. All three are legitimate. It can be women and the NASB 95, which is a very rigid um, word for word, literal translation translates it women. Young's literal translation translates it women. So these are not like uh, the message kind of translations. They're very good exacting translations. It says women. Um, it can be deaconesses or deacon's wives. And the, the debate over this is, can a woman be a deacon? Elders are male, what about deacons? Well, here's my take on it in its context. Why would we be given qualifications for a deacon's wife, but not an elder's wife? That doesn't make sense to me. So contextually, I say, probably the best here is this is translated, women must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. That women certainly can be deacons, and that's my position on this, 100%. Elders, no doubt, men. Deacons, though, servants, I mean, women are naturally more servant-minded than we are. And we have some phenomenal servants here. Our Titus two ladies, I, I can't tell you how much good these women have done practically in the church over the last 10 years. It's unbelievable, unbelievable. They will be so far ahead of me when, we, when it's time to get crowns in heaven, I, I won't see them. Brilliant, brilliant, okay? So um, that's what I think. It says, if you do this, if you're a deacon, you get great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Now, why is that? Because it's something you're involved in. Do you know that? Like when you're involved in something, don't you start talking about it? Doesn't it come up? Doesn't it give you just this confidence and this boldness in the faith? I'll give you an example. A uh, number of years ago, we were out at the Rogue Bowl, so three, four years ago, and someone else was teaching, so I volunteered in the two and three-year-olds. And this person teaching, they went long. And like these kids, these two and three-year-olds, they're like Pavlov's dogs. They know when it should be over. They just started lining up to leave. And then they just got unruly. So we're in like 
two and three-year-olds that were getting unruly. I'm like, oh no. So I decided, hey, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna build Jericho and then we're gonna march around it in silence. Okay, so we started building Jericho and I got the kids all into it. I'm like, okay, so we're gonna march around this in silence seven times. So we start it, we make it about one time and then one of the three-year-olds just tackles the whole thing, right? Just goes over. All right, so uh, that happens. Monday, I'm shopping. I'm in town. I've got my son Elijah with me. And this, I hear this little kid say, there's my teacher. We built Jericho. I look around. I see him and his family have this great conversation about faith, about Jesus. Why? Because I served. And there's boldness. There's an opportunity. Why? Because I served. And just God like opens up doors. You have great boldness. If you want boldness in the faith, just start serving somewhere. And watch and see God just open up these doors where all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, that's awesome. That was a great conversation. Oh my goodness, I feel like Billy Graham right now. This is so awesome, right? Serve. And then lastly, is, it, Paul is so good. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So there are people that say, oh, this was just contextual for some church in Ephesus. No, Paul just said, this is for church, period. And check this out, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. What's a pillar and buttress of truth today? Is our government? <laughs> is entertainment? Like, I watched A White Christmas a week before Christmas. Have you ever watched that? Who's watched that movie? Bing Crosby, brilliant, reinforcing just good stuff, right? You watch it and you're like edified, like that's awesome. Does entertainment do that anymore? Oh my goodness, no, right? Do our schools reinforce truth any longer? Do universities reinforce truth any longer? Does our culture reinforce, reinforce truth any longer? There's one buttress, there's one pillar to truth now. Guess what it is? It's right here. This is all that's left. 50, 100 years ago, you had reinforcement everywhere. Culture reinforced, reinforced it, entertainment reinforced it, schools reinforced it. Now guess what? There's one left. There's one left. It's right here. It's just like it was in the beginning, just like it was 2,000 years ago. There was one place where you got truth, and it was in church. Well, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up into glory. Ultimate leader is Jesus. You want good leadership, read Jesus. He came in the flesh, Paul says, right? God became man. Great is this mystery. He didn't send somebody else to do it. Send somebody else to do his dirty job. He didn't create an angel to go down there and take the fall. He himself came. Why does that matter? Let's imagine I'm at a barbecue. A bunch of kids are running around. And we're at this barbecue. Up comes a pack of crazy, insane, wild, ravaging pit bulls. Right? I know you own a pit bull, and I know that pit bull is the best dog in the world. Okay? Don't email me. I get it. But what am I going to say? A wild, ravaging pack of poodles? 
pit bull it is, right? So here comes these pit bulls and they are going to destroy these children. So I run out there, I grab a three-year-old by the head and I just use that three-year-old to beat off all of those pit bulls. But in the process, yeah, three-year-old's gone. But I turn around and say, look it, I saved you guys. I love you, can't you tell? What would you say to me? You are a monster. You should have thrown yourself on top of the pit bulls and been chewed up yourself. Okay, that's why it matters. God didn't create somebody to take the fall. God said, I will take the fall because there's no greater love that a man has for another than to lay down his life. God becomes flesh and he lays down his life for you and me. And here's the second thing, he becomes flesh because good leaders, here's what good leaders do. They show and tell. Bad leaders just tell. Go do that, go do that. Good leaders get in the ditch with you and they show you how to do it. Jesus got in the ditch with us and showed us how to do it. Brilliant, brilliant. Came in the flesh, good leadership. Vindicated. The resurrection is the proof that God's payment for you took. That your sins are forgiven. He took what you could not. Good leaders, take our burden bearers. You know that? That's killing you. I'm gonna take that away from you and I'm going to absorb part of that so it's not so hard for you. That's what Jesus did for us. And he sits on glory. Do you know right now that Jesus Christ is on the throne? That he is alive. Do you know that? Here's why this is so good. I can read this list. And is anyone in here like, man, A plus for me. I do everything in 1 Timothy 3. I am killing it. Yeah, nobody. You can read this and you can really feel condemned, overwhelmed. Like my house is a wreck. My kids are crazy. My marriage is on the rocks. My character stinks. My reputation is wrong. So what do you do? You turn to Jesus on the throne. You say, Jesus, I don't wanna be this way. I wanna be the dad. I wanna be the mom. I wanna be the worker. I wanna have the reputation. I wanna be the business person that I'm supposed to be. Jesus, help me. He's on the throne. He can help you. That's Hebrews. We went through Hebrews. Hebrews 4.16. Come boldly to the throne room of throne of grace and obtain help in your time of need. That's why Paul ends this whole section on leadership with Jesus. He's the one that makes us into the leaders that we want to be. You come to Jesus. Cure me of my hypocrisy. Cure me of my greed, whatever it is. And he's the one that does it for us. And so Jesus, we are thankful for you. I'm thankful for the elders that are here at Edgewater. They're men of 1 Timothy 3. I pray that you would repay to them good measure, pressed down, running over for their service to the king. I pray, Lord, for those that serve here in so many capacities, parking, kids wing, Titus 2 ladies, WFM, the widow's Wood ministry, Lord, there's so many. I pray that you would repay them good measure, press down. I pray for each of us, Lord, where we have been poked by your word tonight. May we come to your throne and receive help from you in our times of need. And I pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.